while boycotting school and demonstrating for climate action ensure headlines. Voting is still the most powerful mechanism to achieve change in democracies. One way or another, we must find a way to give more weight to the voices and interests of younger and future generations. Otherwise, the social contract that shapes the future will be designed exclusively by those who will not live to see it, with no input from those who will. Welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Naomi and I work at Vintage, producing this very show, the Vintage Books podcast. I'm here to introduce a special extract from What We Owe Each Other, a new social contract by Minou Shafiq, director of the London School of Economics. Born in Egypt, Shafiq emigrated as a child to the USA, later moving to the UK for postgraduate studies in economics. At 36, she became the youngest ever vice president of the World Bank. In this and other global financial and development roles, she has worked on major policy upheavals across the globe, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the financial crash in 2008 and the Eurozone crisis. Shafiq is one of the world's most influential economists and is brilliantly placed to set out the basis for a new social contract which is fit for the 21st century that is, the perceived agreement between members of a society and its rulers about the rights and duties of each. The social contract shapes everything, our political institutions, legal systems and material conditions, but also the organisation of family and community, our well-being, relationships and life prospects. And yet everywhere the social contract is failing. In this extract, Manu Shafiq focuses on generations, generational gaps, generational inheritance, with a particular focus on the environment and climate change. We hope you enjoy this extract from the audiobook. Redressing Environmental Damage Imagine your great-grandparents time-travelling from the past to meet you now. In the vast majority of cases, they would surely have a favourable view of the legacy they have left us. We have so much more material wealth than they could have imagined. Far fewer of us live with the risks of starvation and poverty. Our access to information and education is so much greater than ever before. And most of us have political and social freedoms they would envy. They might regret the lives lost to wars, the forests and species destroyed, and the risks around the climate. But by and large, they would think that they left us a better world than the one they inherited. What would we say if we travelled into the future to meet our great-grandchildren? In terms of education and physical capital, we have continued to invest, and the gains, particularly in the developing world, have been very large. But we have probably underinvested in natural capital, and, especially in the advanced economies, depleted those resources too much all over the world. Some of this can be compensated for by new technologies and skills that will make future generations better off. 
but some of the loss in natural capital needs to be reversed to ensure the well-being of future generations, especially where we face potential tipping points and irreversible losses. Many young people today clearly share this view and have embraced environmental activism. The agenda for redressing the environmental damage we have done is clear. First, as the Hippocratic Oath says, do no harm, or in this case, no more harm. At the moment, governments around the world provide subsidies that actively encourage the exploitation of the environment for agriculture, water use, fisheries, and fossil fuels to the tune of four to six trillion dollars annually. These subsidies mean that it is not just free to deplete the natural world, the taxpayer actually pays people to do it. Second, we must invest more in the conservation and restoration of the biosphere, for example, by planting trees. Current public and private spending on conservation is about $91 billion, less than 0.02% of what is spent on subsidies to degrade the environment. Increasing our spending on conservation 50-fold would still leave 99% of the savings to be made from eliminating subsidies available for other uses. The third step is to measure things properly, where market prices do not convey the true value of environmental services we must find other ways to factor them into our calculations and decisions. There are now well-developed methodologies for measuring environmental impacts and incorporating them properly into national accounts. If we don't measure and price things properly, the market on its own will incentivize excessive depletion of natural capital. Companies will tend to create technologies that economize on things they have to pay for such as labor, and overexploit things they do not have to pay for, like air quality, congestion, or a diverse habitat. Similarly, we may also go astray if we focus on GDP as the sole measure of success, instead of wider measures such as well-being and the capability of the population. Measuring things properly includes taking into account all of the services that nature provides. Consider the contribution of whales. They are dramatic animals and clearly play an important role in the marine ecosystem. But whales also capture a huge amount of carbon. If this is taken into account, the IMF estimates that each living whale provides carbon services worth $2 million, and each forest elephant is worth $1.76 million. Restoring the global population of whales would remove as much carbon as planting two billion trees. Nature is the world's best carbon-captured technology, and if we include its services in our calculations, we will make better investments. Wales, not the animal, but the nation, has developed an interesting approach to taking such values into account. It has appointed the world's first Minister for Future Generations, Her job is to monitor government policies in areas such as transport, energy, and education to ensure that they take into account the interests of the unborn. For example, a proposed road around Newport was challenged for its potential impact on biodiversity and consequences for public debt. While she cannot reverse decisions, 
she can act as a voice for the unheard and make sure issues get addressed. The fourth step toward redressing environmental damage is using fiscal policy, the government's power to tax and spend in order to change the incentives that shape public behaviour so as to actually reverse environmental damage. Taxing the use of carbon, for example, is one obvious way to reduce greenhouse gases and could substitute for other levies so as not to raise the overall tax burden. Those on low incomes who were adversely affected by this would need to be compensated. Neglecting to do this is what got President Macron into trouble with the Gilets jaunes. Chapter 8 includes more detail on the potential role of carbon taxes. Fiscal policy could also include subsidies to green technologies. Such subsidies have helped develop many renewable technologies such as solar and wind power that are now commercially successful and are making the transition to greener energy faster and more affordable. The benefit of these investments will also be felt by future generations, providing them with more options to preserve natural capital. But in the near term, we still have an opportunity to make a real difference with over $100 trillion of investment in infrastructure set to occur over the next 20 years, mainly in the developing world. As economist Nick Stern of the LSE has said, the way investments will be made in transport, energy, water, buildings and land will determine whether we can hold global warming to well below 2 centigrade degrees or whether we are doomed to cities where people can neither move nor breathe and to ecosystems that will collapse. Towards a new social contract between the generations. COVID-19 brought many intergenerational tensions to the fore. The old bore the brunt of the disease's impact on health. The young had to sacrifice economically and socially to protect the elderly. The young will also have to repay the huge public debts that are being incurred to combat the pandemic. In most advanced economies, doing so with income prospects already poorer than their parents. Living through a pandemic during the impressionable years of 18 to 25 will surely have a large and enduring negative impact on young people's confidence in political institutions and their trust in political leaders, especially in democracies where citizens expect governments to be responsive and accountable. How can we rebalance the social contract between the generations? We must do as much as we can to redress environmental damage and find ways to help reduce the fiscal burden on future generations. To achieve this, today's older people may need to work longer and link retirement ages explicitly to life expectancy, as discussed in Chapter 6. The measures described in Chapter 4, achieving universal basic health care and managing rising health costs, including through the use of technology, would also help reduce fiscal pressures. We also need to invest in the next generation to enable them to be productive over what will be very long working lives. Ideally, each young person would start their life with an educational endowment, which enabled them to acquire new skills throughout their career, as discussed in Chapter 3. The active labour market policies discussed in Chapter 5 
helping workers to retrain and get into the jobs of the future would also support productivity. And better early years education and support for women who work would mean we could tap into all the talent in our societies. The resulting gains in productivity would help pay for the elderly care needs of an aging population and make debt more sustainable in the future. These are enlightened investments by one generation in the next and provide the basis for a new social contract between the generations. As we have seen, the politics of such a change are complicated by the fact that old people tend to be more effective at exercising political power than the young. Research has shown that the proportion of old people in the population has a significant impact on the pattern of public spending. Put simply, more old people means more spending on pensions and less on education. Older voters are more averse to policies, such as low interest rates and quantitative easing, intended to increase economic demand and maintain full employment, but which lower returns on savings and risk more inflation. Having retired, they also generally care less about unemployment compared to the average citizen. Political parties in ageing societies such as Germany or Japan are increasingly forced to cater to these preferences. Some might argue that the wealthier the elderly are, the more will be passed on to the next generation through inheritance. But the distribution of inherited wealth is highly unequal, a topic that will be discussed in the next chapter. And some things, like the environment, cannot be inherited privately, but must be shared. Instead, the Cambridge political scientist David Runciman has argued, somewhat mischievously, that the voting age should be reduced to six. You heard that right, six. To counterbalance the growing ageism of democracies. Otherwise, young people's interests will never be adequately reflected in parliaments and elections, while those of the unborn never get considered at all. In a revealing moment during an encounter between Senator Dianne Feinstein and a group of impassioned U.S. schoolchildren arguing for a Green New Deal, she countered, But you didn't vote for me. Her point was not that they should have voted for her, they obviously could not have done so. It was that her duty was to represent the interests of those who had voted for her, a group which didn't include them. While boycotting school and demonstrating for climate action ensure headlines, voting is still the most powerful mechanism to achieve change in democracies. One way or another, we must find a way to give more weight to the voices and interests of younger and future generations. Otherwise, the social contract that shapes the future will be designed exclusively by those who will not live to see it, with no input from those who will. We hope you enjoyed listening to that extract. You can find out more about what we owe each other by Manoush Shafiq in the show notes. What did you think about these ideas? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Vintage Books on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Until next time, keep reading boldly and thinking differently.